ask you, uh, would you please open them to Psalm 136, Psalm 136, and I am going to ask you to stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love, or His loving kindness, endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now... As we go through the next section, I'm going to ask you together to say, for his steadfast love endures forever, because this was done responsively in the assembly. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's my joy and privilege this morning um, to introduce to you uh, someone who really needs very little introduction, and hopefully many of you had the opportunity this morning to be in the question and answer time uh, with Dr. Carl and Joanna Hargrove and enjoyed their fellowship and company, and, and if you didn't get a chance to be there, please listen to it on audio. I'm sure you will find it 
uh, to be an encouragement, but many of you know the Hargroves. We've had the pleasure of having them here on a regular basis, but I think in summation, they are faithful, faithful dear saints who have served us behind the scenes. They have prayed for this church. They have offered us counsel, and many times um, I've gone to Dr. Hargrove and shared with him conundrums or things that are beyond my pay grade and asked for counsel and advice. They are are saints, they are members of the family of God, and they are fellow laborers for the gospel, and and they have dearly loved this church. And so it's a joy this morning to ask Dr. Hargrove to come and bring the exposition of God's word. Thank you so much. All right, excellent. I'm so glad to be here with you um, and to see your faces again, many familiar faces, some that are new, um, as we come to hear God's Word. And it is a privilege indeed. I always see it as an honor to teach God's Word, and particularly to hearts that um, are warm towards it. And I pray that all of yours are. And the topic that I'm going to address for us Um, This morning, as you see the title, The Awe-Inspiring Love of God. And it's a privilege to be here for this ninth anniversary celebration. It was a wonderful time. We flew up um, yesterday in the morning and made it over to the banquet. And it was great hearing testimonies and seeing pictures of some of the journey of the church itself. And, And then to spend some time... Yesterday in fellowship and even this morning in the Q&A time, which was enjoyable and it spilled over a little bit into um, this hour, um, or at least the transition time, but that was okay with the great questions were being asked. And my wife and I enjoyed at least sharing what we could. And even as I thought about this message for your celebration, um, I thought, well, what would be good? And I believe that all of us want to be inspired. And I think that the love of God is a theme that should resonate in our hearts really each day. And as we think about the vastness of God's love, it should inspire us to love. And as you think about your celebration and how the Lord has blessed the work through the years, and of course looking into the future, what will help you continue to grow as a body? What will help you mature? What will help you when conflict comes in the church? What would help when you have to make a decision about preferring another or deferring another? What will happen when you're offended and someone that's even um, a a part of this body hurts you or when you hurt another? It has to be undergirded by love. And what's going to motivate you to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? It has to be love. And that's why I've entitled it the awe-inspiring love of God. And it it should inspire us when we think about the love of God and the beautiful song that we even sang earlier. And and I love the the poetic um, words behind it in the sense that if we had the ink that was... Uh, had filled the oceans, and, and every man were a scribe, and the very skies were a parchment, and if they were all to write about the love of God, the skies would not be enough. It's because the scripture even tells us that God is love. And when we think about an attribute of God, because God is perfect, therefore his attributes are perfect, 
that means to us that our finite minds cannot fully grasp and appreciate. We cannot fully comprehend the love of God. We cannot even fully understand it. Because it comes from God himself. It's an expression of God. I mean, I've often been in conversations with people and they'll ask me um, certain uh, attributes of God. And we have discussion, whether it be at the seminary or at the church or just uh, meeting with a friend for lunch or breakfast or something. And I've often said that when we think about God and his vastness and his greatness, um, if we can, even through our theologies that we write and, and things that we preach, if we can ever walk away and say, ah, Let's put a period on that. We fully understand and we fully comprehend this aspect of God. I would say you're delusional. It's not possible. Because God is too vast and God is too awesome for humans to say we fully comprehend Him. As a matter of fact, I've said to people and I even said to you, I would not want to serve that sort of God. Because that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God that in, in some ways is not, we are not able to fully comprehend because he is a finite being. But God has allowed us to understand what he has revealed in his word, and even what he's revealed in his word would take a lifetime to grasp. I mean, there are men that I know that have in, taken an entire lifetime to focus on one aspect of some theology or even one aspect of just a study of a book. And one scholar, his name is Harold Horner, and he's written an a, a excellent volume on the book of Ephesians. It really is his lifetime work. But yet, he doesn't know everything about Ephesians. Imagine that you've given 30 or 40 years of your life, and you're studying Ephesians, and you study it more and more and more, But yet at the end of it, you say, oh, in one sense, I've only scratched the surface. And in one sense, the love of God is that way we can appreciate it and as best we can understand it, as best we can try to grasp it. But yet it is something that is so comprehensive that we should just stand in awe of it. Now, recently there was a media shower um, and um, just I think it was actually maybe... The day after New Year's, I forget now, and my family, we heard about it, and we thought, well, it would be great to go see it, and I said it would be great to see it in SoCal if you could go out to Joshua National Tree because it's very dark out there. And we thought, oh, I'm not sure if I want to drive two hours. Um, so we drove up to up to 5, up to Fraser Park, and it was a cold day, and as we went up further and further, it was actually um, snow was still out in that area, and we got out and we, we set up these chairs um, wanting to see this great media shower. We did see some. And what was interesting is we drove up to five and it got colder and colder. And, and we turned off and it became pitch dark. And we thought, do we really want to do this? Um, it's like there's this great heated home that we could have and maybe even start a fire on the fireplace. And we got out and set our chairs out. And we saw one meteor um, go, go by and, and another, and another, and, but we were sort of still waiting to see more. But what we did appreciate, as we got away from where we live in Santa Clarita, and some of the light pollution that is there, we could look up into the heaven and say, oh my, look at our God. Oh my, he simply spoke this into being. 
and you look into the heavens and, and I just appreciated it all the more as I looked into the heavens and I thought that God knows each one of these stars by name. And the number of them are even beyond scientists to compute. Then how much more that this loving God has created these things, he's also said that I know even every hair that's on your head. What love of God. And as you see there on the slide that we want to look at this idea of love in scripture, then I want to give you some theological ideas behind the love of God. And then we're going to look at the idea of the cross and how we see the ultimate example of love on the cross. And then for a moment, talk about how the love of God even restores. So the first consideration is this, the biblical precedent of God's love. We'll call this the biblical precedent of God's love. And we see it in 1 John, as 1 John communicates, Behold, what manner of love. And as John makes that statement, he says, Behold, what manner of love. And he goes on to say that we should be called children of God. And what John is saying, it's really, in one sense, even difficult to comprehend that we former sinners and helpless and ungodly and enemies of God, that now you can be considered a very child of God. Behold that. He's saying bask in it, meditate, stop, contemplate. Don't go any further until you've given this serious thought that you can be considered a child of God. And then, of course, in John 4, he tells us God is love. Think about this, consider it. Now, there's some that um, they consider themselves having a deeper theology, and they have this avoidance of the love of God. And what do I mean by that? I've had conversations with these people over the years, and because they would say, well, we talk so much about the love of God, and they identify people when they preach. That's all they discuss is the love of God. And somehow they have misunderstood the love of God. And because they would say, like someone like a Rob Bell in his book that says, you know, love wins in the end, because God is such a God of love, it is not possible that there can be a hell. Because God is such a God of love, it's not possible that he would also judge people for an eternity. That's a misunderstanding of love. And then some of those people respond to someone like his misguided theology about love, and they say, well, we have a deeper theology. Uh, We don't talk as much about the love of God. We talk about things like sovereignty. And they'll even pronounce it that way as well. We talk about things that are much deeper in our theology, and the love of God is simplistic. And I would say to someone like that, that's ludicrous. You're naive. You're misguided. The love of God is great. And what I want to do for a moment is to sort of take you through a biblical view of love. And we're going to start in Genesis, and I want to walk us through a number of um, key books of the Bible and see these snippets of God's love. And then from there, think about even the theological implications of this love. So Genesis and love. What about Genesis? And we can say there that the precedent of God's love is established in the book of Genesis. Why? Because love is seen in the creation that it's good. The goodness of God in love, even as was read in Psalm 136. The Lord is good and his loving kindness. You see this throughout scripture. God is a good God, but also consider his love. 
Oh, give thanks for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. So God expressing his love towards us is also seeing his goodness towards us. God is a good God. He is created. When I looked into the heaven, I saw those stars. I said, God, you are a good God. This is an expression of your love. We can see love in the book of Genesis in that God is now provided for Adam and Eve. We can see love in the book of Genesis in that God then, he knows Abraham. We can see love in the book of Genesis in that he establishes a covenant with Abraham. And he is the one that will not only keep that covenant, but then give a people who can take that covenant to others and say, serve this God of love. There's Exodus and love. We see it in Genesis. We see it in Exodus. Exodus 33 and 34. And we see the revelation of God to Moses. God, uh, there's Moses asked God, let me see your glory. And then what does God do? He allows Moses to see his glory and he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And God passes by and then God makes this self-declaration And he says, he is a God of loving kindness. And to be a God of loving kindness, he's saying that I I love you. I have a commitment to you. I have a committed love towards you. And you even see God's love towards his people. When he brings them out from under the bondage of Pharaoh, that's an expression of love. And as you read earlier from Psalm 136, where it communicates his steadfast love is what the ESV says, The NASB says loving kindness. And what's interesting about that, this word um, translated by the NASB, loving kindness, and ESV, steadfast, a beautiful word that's communicating this sense of commitment, loyalty, covenant. And so much so that even the writers of the NASB, they were trying to get their hands around, how do we express this love in a translation? And they really created this word, loving kindness. We have received that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if you don't know it, um, you walk under that love, although you reject it, because each day God gives you breath. Each day God gives you life. What about Deuteronomy in love? We see God's elective love in the book of Deuteronomy, because God says to Israel that you're not a great people. You're not a people that others might say, well, let's select Israel. You are this small, insignificant people, but God chooses you, not based on your prominence, but God chooses the people of God based on his own heart and his commitment towards them. And then, as I already alluded to, you see the psalmist in love. As you read earlier, um, this idea of his steadfast love being everlasting. And notice what the psalmist does. He sort of takes the people of God through history and these demonstrations of his love. He is the God of God. His loving kindness is everlasting. He's the Lord of lords. He does great wonders. He made the heavens with skill. He smote the Egyptians. He he brings Israel from out of their bondage. He leads the people in the wilderness. He, He strikes down great kings. He rescues the people of God when they don't deserve it. He gives them an inheritance. They're in a low estate, and God brings them up. He is the God of heaven. His loving kindness is everlasting. You also see God's love in the Proverbs in love. Uh, Look with me at Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3. Let's just turn there for a moment. In Proverbs 3, 
And then in verse 12, Proverbs 3.12, and what does it say there? Um, in verse 11, we'll just start there. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. In our Q&A time, the question came up um, about we were discussing questions about marriage and parenting. And, and one question came up about a child that's displaying on a consistent basis an attitude that is unbecoming and is unchristlike. How do we address it? One of the keys is simply consistency. That is addressing it. It is also bringing them to Christ. It's an opportunity for them to see where they need Christ if they're going to change. But we also talked about what God says, this rod of correction. To be consistent with it. And with our kids using the rod of correction, because even in the Proverbs it tells us that the father that does not correct does not love their child. As a matter of fact, it says you hate your child when you don't use this rod of correction. And I'm sure my kids growing up would have said, well, Dad, maybe you could hate me a little bit <laughs> and not use it on me. I'm sure they thought that. It says, no, but I love you. And God does that with us. He loves us, so at times, what does he do? He must chasten us. He must correct us. There's also Isaiah in love. Look with me to the book of Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 and it says there, in verse 3, we'll start. It says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. God is saying here, because I love you so much, I have given away others. I've chosen you instead of them. And notice what he says, you're precious in my sight. There's this sense of endearment that God has towards his people. We see God's love expressed. And of course, in the book of Isaiah, you see the ultimate expression of it. And that the suffering servant would die and give his life. But what is interesting, notice this. Look at Isaiah 63. You say, well, this is a wonderful love. Um, surely they would respond to this love, but we know how some of the story goes with Israel. Notice what it says in Isaiah 63 and in verse 10. It says, but, verse 8 ends with saying, so he became their savior. But notice what it says in verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. This great love is spurned. And even today, people that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, they look around and they can look up into the heavens just as I looked up. And they don't draw the same conclusion because they spurn the love of God. How about Jeremiah and love? Um, Jeremiah, the people of God decided they were going to choose idols instead of the love of God. We see that in chapter 8, verse 2. They're wandering after the lust of their flesh. We see that in chapter 14, verse 10. But yet, God is a God that loves them with an everlasting love. Notice Jeremiah 31 and verse 3. It says, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. 
In the end, God's love will draw his people back to himself. We should appreciate his love. In the book of Ezekiel, we see God's love. Look with me quickly at Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, we see this really illustrative picture of God's love towards Israel. And the picture is this, here is Israel. And he says of Israel, when I came upon you, you're wallowing in your own blood. But what does God do? He takes upon them. And if you will, um, notice in verse 10, it says, I clothe you with cloth. Notice verse 11, I adorn you with ornaments. I put a ring in your nostrils. He says, but... Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the harlot. We see these images of his love towards them throughout this chapter. Although he saved them and he grew them, but they were unfaithful towards him. They spurned his love. Hosea, we see God's love there as well. So despite the spiritual holotry of Israel, God declares that he will not give up on them. And that's a great demonstration of love, isn't it? That we can in a moment say that we love someone, but love is going to be expressed when that love is tested. Love is expressed in marriage. And and the question came up, I always share with them, well, we've been married now in June, 27 years. And it's amazing where the time goes. But there are moments when we had conflicts. And I didn't even answer it, but as I thought about it, I wanted to say this, and I'll say it now. And the question was really asked, um, uh, what is sort of the key? It's 27 years, and and if the Lord wills, maybe we could do, let's see, calculated. I suppose we could do another, we could do 27 more, I think. Yeah, if we eat right and exercise, (laughs) and God's will be with us, we could do 27 more, right? But one key word in any marriage, in any relationship is this. How can it stay? How can it be prolonged? Forgiveness. If you don't forgive the person that you say you love and that person who says they love you, it will not be sustained. And this was true of Hosea of Israel. They were playing the harlot and God says, I forgive you. I will not give up on you. I won't surrender you. Love. It's expansive. It should inspire us. And then we see Luke. The gospel of Luke. We come into the gospel of Luke. We see Luke in love. What's one example of love? There could be many. But in my mind, I have one that stands out the most perhaps. Here is Jesus Christ on the cross. And he is in between two criminals. And earlier the count says that they were both criticizing him, insulting him. And then somehow in the grace of God, which we would say in the love of God, one understands his true state. And he, and, and he says to him, remember when he says, remember me when you come into what? Your kingdom. And what did Jesus Christ say in this moment of love towards this sinner? He says, today you shall be with me where? In paradise. That's love demonstrated we see the love of God in Paul a great love that you see in Paul think about the book of Romans God demonstrates his love towards us Romans chapter 5 towards us when when we were helpless when we were ungodly when we were sinners 
when we were enemies. That's the love of God. You see the love of God in Paul in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1. This great expansive love that's shown towards sinners. So the question is, though, when we think about Romans and we think about Ephesians, you might even say the same thing in the book of Galatians. In Galatians um, 20 and verse 2, it says, Paul is motivated by this love because he says, He loved me and gave himself for me. And therefore, the therefore statement is this, therefore, how should I live? What will motivate me to live the Christian life? And in the book of Ephesians and also Colossians, both of them would say this, now that you have been forgiven, forgive as you have been. The love of God has been shown to me in this way. How can I not then love others? We see Peter and how he talks about love. Look with me at chapter 1 of, of Peter. Turn to chapter 1 in Peter. And notice what's communicated here. In 1 Peter 1, actually in verse 8, it says this, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you did not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with an inexpressible and full of glory, with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. So yes, we love him, although we have not seen him, because his love is shed abroad in our hearts. And then in verse 22, it says this, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your hearts, or your souls, that is, for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So this love has been demonstrated in the example of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, you should then fervently love one another. So, Lighthouse Bible Church, do you fervently love one another? Because surely God has fervently loved you. Look with me at the book of Revelation. Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1 verse 5 it says... And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to whom, to him, that is, who loves us and who, who has released us from our sins by his blood. And notice how the revelation began. Notice the words, us, us, our sins, but his blood. Here's the demonstration of love. And you should then love one another. So the example for us is set by God himself from Genesis to Revelation, the demonstration of love. But let's stop for a moment and think about this theologically. What are some of, number two, what are some of the theological implications of God's love? So if God loves this way, what does this mean theologically? And what might it mean for our life? Well, let me give them to you. You see them all there at once. Let me just walk through them quickly with you. Number one, God's love is exemplified in the Godhead. In John 5, we see this love that the Father has to the Son, and the Son would even have to the Spirit. So we might even call it, there's this Trinitarian love. And why does the Son come and give His life? Because He loves the Father. God's love is totally pure because of uh, what theologians call aseity. What does this mean? What does this, mean? what does this word mean? It means that God has no need of Himself. God is self-sufficient, so his love is absolutely pure. 
Now, there is some that would say, well, God demonstrated his love towards us. He even saved us because he had some need. I've even heard people say a ridiculous, almost blasphemous statement that God is lonely. Therefore, he decided to love us and to bring us to himself. No. And it seems like even some of the songs that we sing nowadays is, um, you know, God was in some need, and therefore he demonstrated his love to us to fulfill some need in itself. No, God's love is absolutely pure. He has no need in himself. See, with us, sometimes um, we may demonstrate an affection towards a person because we want something. Our motives are not pure. But if you're like God, he has no need in himself, so you must ask yourself, why did he love? He has no need. And it demonstrates the purity of that love. And when we can give with no expectation of return, then that's a demonstration of the purity of our love. We can also say this, that God's love is intimate because of foreknowledge. That is, what does it mean, God's foreknowledge? And some would say, well, foreknowledge means that God, he looks into the annals of times and he realizes that Carl there at the University of Cincinnati is going to turn to me. So therefore, since I now know that, I will set my love on him. Well, that is not true. The, the word for foreknowledge really has its backdrop, I believe, in the Old Testament. Even that word that we had communicated before, loving kindness, this sense of, and the Hebrew word is this word yada. It is um, to have a knowledge of, but this knowledge means to have a knowledge that is an intimate knowledge. So God for love, and we, we, we could even say that God for loved us. In the same way that Adam knew his wife, it was saying that he expressed his love towards his wife. And so God has a foreloving, he has a forelove for us, even before the foundation of the world. So we can say that God's love towards us is not some love that is indifferent, that is cold, that is sterile. It's an intimate love. He's loved you from even before creation. That's consistent with the thought of Ephesians 1.4. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world. We can also say this, that God's love is sovereign because of providence. God is expressing his love towards us, and then he directs all things according to his sovereign will. God is guiding your life. That's an expression of love. It's amazing how many times in life, and I think it would be true for you if you're paying attention, and you can say, this is an amazing meeting. How did we come together? You meet someone, and then that meeting turns into a relationship. That's the guiding hand of providence. That's God's loving care of your life. And, um, you know, you, what we need to do is make sure that we are like a child. Um, our hand is in his hand and allowing him to guide us. But here's something else, though. There's also what has been called a frowning providence. Sometimes in that guidance, God brings situations in our life that it's hurtful, it's painful. Even in the life of this church, um, painful moments in the life of this church, which is true in any church, painful moments that God brings in the life of a body to mold that body more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an act of God's loving hand of providence, sovereignty moving over. We can say that God's love is intentional because of this word 
uh, perspicuity. What does this mean? This, this word, um, it means the idea that there's clarity. God's word is discernible. So we might say this, God has demonstrated his love in that you can understand his word. This is what the word means. And why is that important? Why would I even have that up there? Because some people would say, well, uh, when it comes to God's word, at times there are parts of it that can be difficult. That's true. Um, even Peter himself said that. There are certain things that even Paul is communicating that are difficult to understand. And that's why the psalmist would even say, Lord, open my eyes that I can behold wonderful things from your law. And that's why we study. But God has made his word in a way that it is not some escape room where you have to find your way out. And it's, it's meant to be difficult. It's not meant to be difficult. It's meant to be discerned. And that's an expression of God's love where he says, my word can be discerned and understood if you come to it with humility. That's an expression of love. God's love is intervening because of his mercy. Ephesians 2, 4. Ephesians, and I, you're going through the book of Ephesians right now, are you not? And even a part of your theme, even for this year, is Ephesians, then what is it, 8 through 10? But what's wonderful about that passage, isn't it, verses 1 to 3, that you're dead in your transgressions and sins. I mean, you walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You, you walked according to the spirit of disobedience, but there it is in verse 4, this divine intervention, God's mercy, and it says what? But God being rich in mercy. And notice what it says, though, because of his great love with which he loved us. So even the demonstration of his mercy, this intervening mercy, has its basis, if you will, in a great love. This great love that is throughout Scripture. And we might even say this, that God's love is necessary because of wrath. Because of wrath. You know, mercy is needed and can only really be appreciated when we think about the holy wrath of God. It's something I think about a lot, and I've thought about it over the years, time and time again. And even recently in the conversation with someone, they said they had preached at G3 on Psalm 149, and he said that it was heaven, uh, a doorway from hell. And I said, you're right. You think about that. That we can appreciate the love of God when we think about more the wrath of God. What were we deserving? But God demonstrates his love towards us. How do we appreciate mercy if we can only first appreciate God's wrath? God's love is seen in chastisement because God is, he loves us enough to do what? To use his loving hand of chastisement to make us more like Christ. And we see John in love. In the book of John, and I, I didn't share John before because I, I wanted this to lead to something that is very lofty. And I might even say a frightening example of God's love. And we just see love throughout the gospel of John. And I just noted those for you. And you can, I, of course, I won't go through all of those verses now. But I just want you to see how God's love is demonstrated beginning with the Something that we learn, perhaps even as a child, for God so loved the world. 
you see Christ saying, yes, I do this because I love the Father. This call that I, I lay down my life because I love my Father. I give my life. Why? Because of love. And it, at the end of the book, do you love me, Peter? We see it throughout. And in John, this leads us to this third consideration, the supreme example of God's love. So we've seen it biblically. It's clear from Genesis all the way to Revelation that God loves. We thought about some of the connections theologically. So if God loves, these other things are also true. We might say this, there's a supreme example of God's love. And if we were to pay attention in the next couple of moments to John 19, we can see four examples of this enduring love at the cross. Here is a perfect expression of love, and that the Son of Man would give his life as a ransom for many. Look with me to John chapter 19. The first consideration is this, of this supreme example. God's love endured mockery. God's love endured mockery. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a thorn, a crown of thorns, and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King Jesus, and give him slaps in the face. Now remember in part where we started about God's love in creation in the book of Genesis. We look into the heavens and you see the vastness of his love displayed and that he said, let there be light and there was light. And you can get away from the light pollution around you and go somewhere else and look into the heavens and say, this is amazing, this great creating God. But then you have to put that in the context of him humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And now you're allowing your creation to do what? Mock you. To say to you, king, to slap you. And these thoughts should never grow cold in your heart. I've been studying the Word of God for a long time. I was saved in college in 1989. Wow, 30 years. And then I've gone to seminary and... I've mentioned this before to people, and I walked across that podium at the Master's Seminary three times, three degrees. But it seems like every time that I've been thinking biblically, because even when I start to, when I preach, I, I have a routine Saturday where I just, certain things I don't listen to and I don't do, and I begin to make a transition. In the morning, as I was listening to these songs about how much he loves us, a, a great song by sovereign worship. And then I was listening to this other song, you know, Come to the Altar. And I was meditating on these things, and then when I read this again, it's fresh for me even again. That this God, this great God who has is so expansive beyond our comprehension, his finite being says he allows himself to be scourged and mocked. And a purple robe put on him saying, yes, here's this purple robe. It represents royalty. Surely you are royalty. And he allows himself to be slapped in the face. And this is all preemptive to his execution. 
And you say, what love is this? This should stimulate your heart. And in that crucifixion, what happens to him? Even Josephus in his works, Jewish Wars, he talks about when one is scourged, he said there are accounts of a man whose bones were exposed. So much of his flesh is torn away. Now I can see his ribs. This is what Jesus Christ allowed. Eusebius, he writes in his history, he writes this. There are accounts of one's veins and arteries and entrails and organs being exposed because of the scourging that would take place on some. And you ask, does he love me? And what does the account in Luke say in Luke 23 and 15? Pilate says, I will punish him and release him. So I'll scourge him and let him go. Now, he's declared innocent in John 18 and 38. So there's this great injustice that takes place. He says, he's innocent. I find no guilt in him. But yet, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And the Son of Man, the one who said, again, I remind you, who says, let there be light. is subjecting himself to this darkness. And that's why some, as Jesus Christ was scourged to the degree that he was, that's why it hastened his death. And that's in part why when they came to him to break the bones of the others, he was already dead. This is why in Isaiah, I said there was love in Isaiah. This is why in Isaiah it says, Isaiah 50 and verse 6 said, he, he gave his back to those to beat him. That's why it tells us in the scripture that says he, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And what he's saying is I must go to Jerusalem. And think about it. He's saying I must go for what? I must go to die. To demonstrate love. So for God so loved the world that he gave. And this is what's so utterly ridiculous with some people. They think that somehow their theology has gotten deeper and more sophisticated. And they forget the simplicity, but yet the great profundity of a John 3.16 that God is saying, I loved and I gave. And this is giving. (laughs) What more could he give except his life? In this account from John 19.1-3, it doesn't tell us what Mark and Matthew say. Because in Mark and Matthew, it says that he was given a reed, supposed as a scepter. And Mark and Matthew said that he was spat upon, that he was slapped. And it says that he was also struck with a rod. Isn't it interesting that earlier I said in Proverbs 3, 12, 3 and 12, that don't um, resist the reproof of the Lord, every son he chastens, which is also true in Hebrews as well. That's a demonstration of his love. It talks about this rod of correction, but here is now a rod that's in the hands of evil men striking the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can also say this, it's a rod that comes from his heavenly father because Isaiah also says this, it pleased the Lord to do what? To strike him. So although it may have been in the hands of evil men, it was still a rod that's ordained by his heavenly father to strike his only son for you. And you don't want to love? 
And when you're hurt, you want to hold that against someone? You say, wait a minute, did they have some conversation about us? No, I know people. I've been pastoring a long time. I can say that in every church. And if I were right now standing at Grace Community Church, I would say to people there, you don't want to love and you want to hold something against an individual and you don't want to forgive, who are you? Why do you think so highly of yourself? Why do you think so lowly of God? I would say that same thing. If I could transport myself back in time and be at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon spoke, I would say the same thing. If I were in the fields where, Jay, where Whitfield speak, spoke, I would say the same thing. Because that's the human heart. Love is marked, mocked, but it endures. This is what we see. And it also endured injustice, not only the mockery, but in verses 4 to 13, love endured injustice. He is pronounced innocent in 1838. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. Of course not, because this is a spotless lamb of God. It's impossible to find guilt in him. Unless it is conjured up in your own mind. And this is what the religious leaders had done. He seeks to deceive people and to lead us astray. This is the spotless Lamb of God. What a travesty of justice here. But yet love endures it. I find no guilt. Notice what it says in verses 8 through 11. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid as it had been communicated. He made himself out to be the Son of God, which he was. And of course, this is a theme throughout the Gospel of John, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And what happens here? Notice verse 10. So Pilate said to him, "Uh, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And I love this response. Jesus answered, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from where? Above. Above, my father is allowing this to happen because he loves. My father is striking me because he loves. My father will forsake me because he loves. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Those who spoke these words, who cried out, they will pay a heavier price than you. You will pay one, but theirs will be greater. Now, he was afraid before. Wouldn't you have been afraid even more? But here's the human heart. The human heart, think about this for a moment. He is facing the very essence, the very definition of truth. Because what does the scripture say? I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. He is speaking the truth. But his heart becomes hardened. And instead of repenting, it becomes even more callous. Jesus Christ was silent. Of course, because Isaiah 53 and 7, it says, As a sheep before shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is a demonstration of love. You have no authority. It's been given to you from above. Notice something else about this love. In verses 14 to 16, God's love endured spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Where is the spiritual blindness? Verse 14, notice what it says. Now it was 
the day of preparation for the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And here is this epitome, perhaps, of blindness. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. What hypocrisy. Here is their literal king here, and they claim in this moment, which was not true, it was nothing but the truth, that they had some allegiance to Caesar, Caesar, which they did not. And what happens? Verse 16. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. And then in verses 17 to 22, Love endures humiliation. He's crucified like a sheep that is led before his shearers. The Son of God. But his love endured. A thorn is pressed into his brow, blows on his face, ridicule, spiritual blindness around him. He's rejected by his people. He is then abandoned by his father. He cries out in those great words, it is finished. And it's finished for whom? For those that would recognize this love, see their sin, and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. There's something else I want you to see in this gospel. Look at chapter 21 with me. We'll call it the blessed application of God's love. How much he loves. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Then a third time he asked that same question, do you love me? And he says, you know all things, you know that I love you. Then he says, tend my sheep. Here's the application of love in this man's life. Peter had failed. He had denied the Lord, and not simply denied him, but denied him to the point of even cursing. It was two years ago now in Israel with the staff from our seminary and and go into this spot of denial. And it was a great moment to sort of sit there and think about Peter and what went through his mind in this, in this moment of fear that he may have had. With this love, this God that it demonstrated nothing but love towards him, he would in that moment reject him. Yet his love wins in the end. He restores him. And for any person that has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ but can come to grips with their own sin, he can restore the relationship. And for a believer who has chosen sin, maybe for even a period of time, and they are harboring something in their heart and they come to grips with their knee, he can restore because of this great love. So I have a final thought for you, and it is this, for your church, for Lighthouse Bible Church, there's an ultimate celebration. In nine years, and as my wife and I, 27 years, and we're hoping that we'll do many more. 
and you have nine years, and I'm hoping that you'll do many more. I'd love to be able to come back, and you're celebrating your 20th anniversary. And come back, and it's your 30th anniversary. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? But I remind you, how do I get to the 20th? How would we get to the 30th? How might you get to the 40th anniversary? I would say that you get there by love. That you love one another. Because it's, because it's evident that God loves you. You see it from Genesis to Revelation. You see the theology of it. You see it demonstrated on the cross. And then what you must all do is, how do I take up my cross, as Jesus Christ said, daily, look to the cross, look to the example of that love, and then demonstrate that in the life of the church. But when you don't decide to love, when you don't decide to forgive, when you don't decide to prefer, you denounce in one way the great love of God shown towards you. I pray that you would not. That you'll bask in this love and live it out and be a conduit of God's love to others. Father, we thank you for the great example of your love for us and that giving your son and your son died for us. Help us to emulate it. In Christ's name, amen.